This podcast is sponsored by Sound Critical Care, the employer of choice for critical care physicians, where we promote physician autonomy, mastery, and purpose. At Sound Critical Care, we ensure physicians have the time and resources needed to deliver compassionate care that measurably improves quality and lowers the cost of health care for patients in the communities we serve. For more information, please visit soundphysicians.com. Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Infield. Today, I'll be speaking with Kimberly J. Haynes, PhD, BHSCS, on her article entitled Enablers and Barriers to Implementing ICU Follow-Up Clinics and Peer Support Groups Following Critical Illness, The Thrive Collaboratives, recently published in Critical Care Medicine. To access the full article, visit ccmjournal.org. Dr. Haynes is a senior ICU physiotherapist and physiotherapy researcher lead at Western Health in Melbourne, Australia. Before we begin, do you have any disclosures you'd like to share with the article? Hi, yes, I have a couple. So um, we were funded our research team. So I led that team with Dr. Joanne McPeak from Scotland and Dr. Carla Stephen from the US. And we were funded by SCCM to undertake this work. I am also a recipient of a SCCM Thrive Award and that has funded my hospital to establish our peer support program locally, uh, which we called IC Resolves. So what got you interested in studying critical care and illness recovery? Yeah, sure. That's a great question. So uh, as an ICU physiotherapist or physical therapist, as you term them in the US, I was really, um, as a clinician, focused on the physical recovery of patients and trying to restore their physical health. Um, I then went on to do my PhD um, that was titled Recovery Following Critical Illness, and I investigated for that patient and family outcomes. And through that process, I really gained a greater awareness of the complexities of recovery, that it's not just isolated to the patient, that it's really, um, you know, a whole family, uh, the whole family is affected um, and really sort of came to understand that rehabilitation is much more broader than the physical constructs and sort of doesn't just happen in isolation. And I guess also the other thing from a clinical perspective that sort of always motivated me and kind of continues to motivate me in this field is that I really sort of am interested in better understanding the outcomes from our care in the ICU. So if we're going to do all these things which are expensive and sometimes evasive and burdensome, what does this then actually mean uh, for patients and families in the long run? That's a great motivation for a project. I'm really interested in understanding your project a little bit more because the methods and design are a little bit unique for a lot of us. Can you just give us a quick primer for those of us not familiar with qualitative methods about uh, how to understand this article? Absolutely. So qualitative methods really help us to better understand the social world that we live and operate in. So qualitative methods really can help us to discover information that may otherwise be unseen or unable to be fully explored using quantitative methods. For example, it can really help us to understand the human and social factors um, related to a specific topic. And it could also help us elicit information regarding the way people behave, their attitudes and beliefs. So it's a methodology which lends itself really nicely um, to particularly sensitive topics so if, for example, you were to design a cert, you know, an investigative device survey, you might be limited by your own biases in terms of how you design that survey, um, whereas with qualitative methods, it really keeps it much more open that you can explore lots of different angles. So I think in critical care as well, there's lots of brilliant examples of qualitative methods that have been used. And I think increasingly we will keep seeing this method being used as we continue to investigate the humanistic and social aspects of critical care medicine. 
And so certainly for the study, we chose qualitative methods because we felt it was the most appropriate way to answer our research question, where we wanted to understand from the participants what they perceived the barriers enablers were to starting up their respective ICU recovery programs. So using qualitative methods, it really allowed us to explore these concepts with a broad view compared to if we'd, if we'd designed a survey um, as, as a sort of a comparison. We also use from the field of implementation science a framework called the Consolidated Framework for Implementation Research. Uh, And this was just another useful approach to help us understand the broader context within which these programs are being implemented. So that framework helps you think about it in terms of, you know, your local hospital and institution and then the the environments of the political, cultural, social aspect in which, you know, your hospital sits and sort of it goes broader from there. And then it thinks about the people who are involved, the processes related to implementation. So that was a great way for help, for us to really understand some of those environmental influences as well. What ended up being one of the biggest barriers for you all to do this project? So I think it was probably more once we got the data, um, organising the volume of data. So if anyone goes on and have a look at the article and then have a look at the um, supplemental tables, you'll see some of, uh, get a bit of a sense of, of the volume of um, data there. Although, as, as I mentioned, using that framework really helped us to kind of categorise and catalogue that. But I guess that, that was sort of, you know, just something you work through as a researcher. But certainly, I think we were really fortunate with the position that we were in with our data collection and that we could integrate completing the focus groups as part of the Thrive meetings, um, which are held at um, SCCN's annual Congress. So we really had quite an effective mechanism to recruit participants and it was already a highly engaged group. So so actually getting the data was rel- relatively straightforward. And, you know, even though there was an international aspect to it and it was, you know, a range of um, disciplines involved, again, because we had that mechanism related to SCCN's Thrive Collaboratives, of sort of getting everyone in one place at one time. We, re- we really leveraged off that to, to get our data. Yeah, the Thrive Collaborative has really been a prolific group and, and seems to be a growing interest. What made your group want to understand what the barriers and, and enablers were for these recovery clinics and, and projects? Um, so I guess one point to make is that we were really interested in investigating um, post-ICU programs. And so I kind of think of that more as an umbrella term. And then within that, there's probably two more common models of delivery, which tend to be clinics, for which there's one Thrive Collaborative, and then the other being peer support groups, which there's been a a separate Thrive Collaborative for. And and so that was a really a great opportunity to learn from each other and bounce ideas off off each other. And so I guess they're both quite distinct um, interventions. And certainly we're beginning to understand more about how both of them work, really, because they are relatively complex interventions. And I think they can be harder to run than people may realise. For example, you know, the the who, the what, the why, the where, the how um, can be can be a lot to sort of work through and, and, and understand and define and then trial and then find that might not work and then have to sort of keep shifting and kind of keep finding um, ways forward. So, yeah, we wanted to understand not only the barriers but also the enablers to implementing these programmes really to help others who are interested in this field to have adequate signposting of the barriers so that they could really address them up front and then to consider how they might leverage uh, the enablers that we've um, identified at their own institution 
So thinking about things, for example, um, whether they've involved the appropriate people in their team, thinking about ways to obtain funding, and then identifying appropriate space to run the program. I know for myself, we've been trying to launch a post-ICU discharge clinic at our institution for a number of years, and, and I was not surprised to see some of the barriers. Did you all identify any real things that made those barriers easier to overcome that people can take back to their either their institutions or their own programs to really push their projects forward? Yeah, so I think um, I'd probably direct people to have a look at the um, supplemental tables because that's probably where some of the real gold of the paper is um, in terms of, for example, funding, because I know that's probably one of the most common one. I'm remembering a quote where someone said, uh, we worked out along the lines of, I'm paraphrasing, we worked out pretty quickly that if you call it post-ICU care, um, no one will fund that. But if you think about other funding mechanisms or other ways that you can call your clinic within your institution, they said they had much more success with with that sort of option. So there's probably far too many for me to mention, but there is absolutely some great, you know, signals and sign posts um, in those supplemental tables. I guess one of the other things that I'd sort of just highlight to people when they are starting these new programs at the hospital is that's really important to acknowledge, I think, first and foremost, that there's a limited evidence base that supports these programs. So for clinics, um, currently there's an absence of effect. And then for peer support groups, there is an absence of evidence, although in the limited evidence that does exist, there is some indication of benefit. Uh, and so um, not, it's not necessarily a pitfall, but I think it's just important that we kind of, as we think about implementing these new services, that we really need to build in some rigorous evaluation so that we can contribute new knowledge to the field because otherwise it can become a bit of a missed opportunity where these programs may all of a sudden become embedded as part of usual care and then they become, I think, a bit harder to to evaluate, although obviously not impossible. And I think as well, like I mentioned earlier, it's it's becoming clear that these programs are more challenging to develop and implement than people realise and um, certainly uptake by patients and families can be low. So I think as well, thinking about it in terms of the cost-constrained environment of health, and I'm speaking mostly from my experience in the Australian health system, although it's probably similar to other aspe- uh, regions of the world, that really um, it, building in that evaluation, I think, is going to be really critical in order to sustain these um, programs in, in the longer term. So yeah, so barriers are well, certainly, I think, the ones that people spoke about the most were about finding funding and then finding appropriate space to run these programs and then working out who is the most appropriate to attend. Um, so which patient, you know, do you offer it to patients and families? Do you uh, approach just log stayers? Um, how do you define that? So the more you sort of start kind of thinking about some of these operational processes, I think, the more you sort of start to unpack and have to really kind of think these issues through. And I guess there's no right way, wrong way. Um, No one's discovered the real, um, you know, magic bullet just yet. But I think we're still, um, you know, working through a a lot of these issues. But doing it together and doing it collaboratively, I think, has really helped us uh, sort of um, move the field forward as a group. One of the things that I was struck by that, and I've also found true locally, is is that there's a barrier for patients coming to a physical clinic. It's hard for them to uh, sometimes get moving and get in and out of cars, and then you have parking to deal with and and the transportation. Were there any nuggets or or findings that you uh, latched onto or saw from the collaboration of how people have addressed that issue? 
gets back a little bit to your space issue, but also just sort of the overall barriers for our patients? Yeah, so I think that's a really um, important point in kind of thinking about running hospital-based programs um, that's concerning limit attendance. I think, again, in the supplemental tables, um, we, we talk about there, or the participants talk about that, you know, caregivers have already taken time off work when the patient's been in the ICU. And then so it's, you know, something else that we're asking them, oh, you know, help them get ready, help them come back to hospital to come and attend this intervention or this um, clinical peer support group. So I think we, as part of this research, we certainly didn't specifically investigate ways to overcome this barrier. And I think, I mean, that could be a really nice piece of work in and of itself. But in the future, I think it does need to be looked at in terms of what is the ideal and optimal model which will reduce those issues related to access. And so I think some of the um, some of the things, ideas that have been put forward is, you know, could could you Skype people into a peer support group, for example? I, I offered that to one of our um, participants who lived about eight hours from our hospital, that his response was that if, you know, you saved, you saved my life, I'm willing to travel to, to come here. So I think we also need to remember that, you know, that the whole thing of one size doesn't fit all. You can't really take a blanket approach. But I think it is important increasingly that we provide options. So, if, you know, if it, it's not just in person, but there might be Skype or Zoom options, um, yeah, other telehealth options. The Mayo Clinic um, have been doing a lot of their work um, online in a um, moderated online forum. Yeah, so there's, there are other options out there. And I guess it's, um, it would be then taking those uh, uh, sort of models and ways of delivery or modes of delivery and then um, testing them and evaluating them um, and as well because they could be more cost-effective and have better uptake than asking people to come back to hospitals where, yeah, they can't park, um, it's hard to access, um, et cetera, et cetera. Was there anything that surprised you in the research? Um, so I guess I expected there to be an overwhelming number of barriers that would be insurmountable, and perhaps that was because of my prior experience of being involved in the Thrive Collaboratives and you sort of hear everyone mulling over these issues. And so I, I guess I just sort of felt that we were going to a bunch of barriers, but that wasn't the case. And we actually found a greater number of enablers than barriers. So I think probably one of the most important enablers that we uncovered was that really having motivated clinicians, um, whether they were leaders or whether they were a team of clinicians who really um, persisted despite coming up against obstacles and, and red tape, you know, they had to really keep kind of pushing forward. So I think for me, that was really inspiring to be reminded that in healthcare, you know, it can be tough going and it can be tough going whether you're in Australia, um, whether you're in the UK, whether you're in the US, as were the, um, the regions for the study or any other part of the world that sometimes, you know, it can be hard to get traction with your idea and bring others along with you. But certainly if you're motivated, if you're committed, that can go a long way. And I think working together as a team can really help keep your energy up and keep your spirits up. So sort of, you know, work, working um, within a team, I think really helps as well. So where is this research leading you for your next steps and your next research project? Yeah, sure. So this study is part of a broader program of research um, that I mentioned I've been leading with Joanne McPeak and Carla Sieben and others. And we called this program um, CAIRN. So that stands for Collaborative Assessment of ICU Recovery Needs. 
And that was funded by SCCM to ask some really um, key questions around sort of the global impact of, of the Thrive Initiative. And so we have published another paper from this work in intensive care medicine this year, and that also used qualitative methods. And we investigated the way in which post-ICU programs such as these can really improve within ICU care. So really closing that loop back to the ICU so that these programs aren't being, just being run, you know, downstream in isolation, but that we're really connecting them back to really make us think about outcomes after ICU and then how might that motivate us and change the way we behave and care for patients in the ICU. So that's sort of one other paper from this work. And then um, probably some other really key and interesting papers that will be forthcoming have, are exploring the perspectives of patients um, and then also their families regarding what they perceive works to improve recovery in the context of these programs. So that's sort of the broader program of work. And then for me personally at my hospital in Melbourne, Australia, um, with my colleagues and collaborators, we are currently running a world first pilot um, randomised controlled trial of our peer support program that we called IC Resolve. Uh, and so ongoing, I guess I'm really interested in exploring the most efficient and cost-effective model that's designed with patient and family involvement to meet their needs, because I think it's hard for us to set these um, programs up as clinicians and researchers where we are coming up with the design. So I um, believe quite strongly that we should be involving uh, patients and families in, in how we um, come up with the design of these programs. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You hit on it earlier that ICU care is expensive and invasive, and it would be great to know that what we're doing is both helping people survive, but also uh, thrive and get back to their work. And it seems like we're starting to make some headway in both looking at our research outcomes, but also what do we do after the patient leaves the ICU? Yeah, absolutely. I think us really sort of starting to understand more what um, these programs can do for not only patients and families and understanding the outcomes, but also what it might be able to do for us as staff. So um, the paper I mentioned in intensive care medicine, that paper really describes nicely that we might be able to improve um, staff morale in the ICU through these programs. So by giving people that clinicians that that view down the track that they otherwise might have had access to, to really know what happens to patients and, and families once they leave them. Um, so I think there's um, really some powerful work to be done ongoing if we think about issues related to morale um, and workforce issues such as uh, burnout. Um, so I think, yeah, there's, there's lots to be done in this space. That's actually exactly where I was heading with my question there was, is what, do you, what, is, what does this do for our staff? Because I know for the nurses and providers that I work with, they're always, they see the patient leave, but then what happens to them afterwards? And I was wondering if there's some work around that feedback to them. So that's excellent. And we'll have to pass that one on to my team. So you hit on that there's a wealth of knowledge in, in the uh, supplemental materials to go after uh, if there were three takeaways for our listeners from this paper, for you, what would they be? So I think firstly, uh, that several enablers and barriers uh, to implementing clinics and peer support groups existed, although the enablers did outweigh the barriers. If establishing a program at your institution, I really um, would encourage people to take these barriers into account so that you can mitigate them early so that you don't go ahead and do something and then sort of come up against the same issue that others have had. And certainly as well, thinking about the enablers um, that, that this data um, shows. So thinking about what can you do to really leverage those enablers 
first off um, to help prove IC recovery through your program because this data and this knowledge comes from a group of really highly experienced clinicians who've thought long and hard about these issues and I'm sure the issues are even though there are regional differences in care and the way we do things, um, certainly what we found as a group is that the issues of survivorship and the issues that we face working in hospitals are not all that different um, from country to country. And then finally, the third is that among the most important enablers, um, the one to sort of think about the most is that uh, motivated clinician leaders are really important to help persist, drive a team forward and, and really find a path forward despite obstacles because uh, you will come up against them but really um, that motivation and commitment um, goes a long way so thinking about how can you keep your energy up how can you stay motivated thinking about ways that you can do that and I would suggest leaning on your peers leaning on your colleagues leaning on others who um, are interested in this field um, can help a lot. That's excellent if there's a clinician out there who's thinking about starting up their own post-ICU clinic or peer support group, is there a, a general resource that they could find on the, the web or otherwise to look for information on how to get started? Absolutely. So SCCM have a page related to all things Thrive. So if you just Google SCCM Thrive, um, it should come up for you. Um, certainly, I personally am happy to be contacted, as I'm sure the rest of the research team are, Joe and Carla, um, if you want us to point you towards any papers because those papers are in, the, in the field really kind of contain a lot of pointers for, for getting started. But I'd yeah, direct first and foremost to um, the SCCM Thrive um, webpage. Thank you, Dr. Haynes. That was wonderful. And a lot of information shared about uh, this paper and also just what our, um, we can do to help our patients going forward. This will conclude another edition of the iCritical Care Podcast. For iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Kyle Enfield. This podcast is sponsored by Sound Critical Care, the employer of choice for critical care physicians, where we promote physician autonomy, mastery, and purpose. At Sound Critical Care, we ensure physicians have the time and resources needed to deliver compassionate care that measurably improves quality and lowers the cost of health care for patients in the communities we serve. For more information, please visit soundphysicians.com. Kyle Enfield, M.D. Kyle Enfield, M.D. is an associate professor of medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care at the University of Virginia. He received his undergraduate degree from the University of Oklahoma. He received his joint medical and master's degrees in epidemiology at the University of Oklahoma Health Science Center and went on to complete his residency and fellowship at the University of Virginia. In July of 2013, Dr. Enfield was appointed as the Medical Director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit at the University of Virginia. From 2009 through July 2016, he was the Assistant Hospital Epidemiologist there, and he remains the Co-Medical Director of the Special Pathogens Unit. Dr. Enfield's clinical interests are in critical care medicine and transport of critically ill patients. His academic interests are the epidemiology and prevention of healthcare-associated conditions, including multidrug-resistant organisms acquisition and healthcare-associated infections. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.